Hello, today's podcast is brought to you by Gearsource.com, the only global marketplace dedicated to professional production gear. With people strategically located throughout North America, Europe, and Asia, Gearsource has created a marketplace that helps you find a home for your surplus gear, whether that's just up the road or on the other side of the world. Our new state-of-the-art payment system helps to eliminate fraud, but also makes payments easy in whatever currency you or your buyer may prefer. And if you're looking to add to your arsenal of quality production gear, why not save some money and buy with confidence on Gearsource.com? So go ahead, try it. Buy or list something for sale for free today. Hello and welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode number 161, and thanks for joining me today. I actually, uh, I missed you. <laughs> I, mi- I missed doing it. You know, it's funny because I kind of uh, binged at LDI a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and did, I don't know, five episodes, all of which I thought were pretty darn good, great guests at the show there. And, uh, so since that time I haven't done anything. And so this opportunity came up today for, uh, a gentleman named Rocco Reedy. And if you know him, you know exactly who I'm talking about and you know, you're in for some fun. And if you don't know him, brace yourself. You know, I will tell you, uh, there might be some funky language. There might be some scary stories. And so be prepared. It's not going to be for the weak stomach, uh, but it should be fun. So Rock, Rocco's a great guy. He's got some unbelievable stories. If you follow him on Facebook, you've seen a lot of his stories recently. He's been uh, posting a lot of these videos of his bands and stuff playing. So a lot of fun. And uh, I recommend you check him out on Facebook as well. So anyways, uh, again, thanks for joining me today. It's going to be fun. I'm not going to take a heck of a lot of your time. Um, speaking of LDI, I'd love to know your thoughts. You can comment uh, anywhere you're, you're getting this podcast, or you can comment on Giza's Gear on Facebook or LinkedIn. And I uh, would love to hear from you, though. Um, I think most people have heard my views on the show. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought uh, the company did a really good job and should be proud of themselves. So, um, but yeah, would love to hear from you. Send us a message on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or uh, just on the podcast itself. Uh, leave a comment and let me know what you thought. But good on LDI, good on live, whatever they're called these days or whoever owns them now. But uh, they did a fantastic job. And the people I know there, I certainly let them know what my feelings were. So um, Europe, what's going on in Europe? Europe's closing down again. I heard this morning, I heard a crazy story that uh, in Greece, there are um, they've created this new law where people over a certain age, I think it might even be only 60. And uh, because we're called geezers of gear, I think there's a lot of people listening to this who 
um, probably fall safely into the over 60 category. But I think if you're over 60 in Greece and you are unvaccinated, you are now required to pay a fine of 100 euro per month, every single month. Uh, in perpetuity until you are vaccinated. So um, I know that uh, I've got sort of a split crowd on this where a lot of people are going to say, good, you know, good, you should be vaccinated. Great. You might think that people should be vaccinated. I think most people should be vaccinated as well, but I don't think they should be fined for uh, what decision they're making. You know, that's no different than fining fat people for eating Twinkies or fining drinkers for drinking Budweiser or smokers. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people that think we should find smokers as well. Or how about weed smokers? How about drinkers? How about, you know, any of those things? We should be fining you because much more than COVID, you're, you're taxing our system, you're taxing our healthcare systems, you're taxing the tax uh, system, you're, you're taking much more benefits than other people are. And you know what, that's just how it works out. You know, some people are going to cost more money than other people. And that's just how it works out. So um, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with government mandates. I don't agree with the government getting involved in our Healthcare, our lives, our personal decisions, our family decisions, uh, believe it or not, even what a woman does with a baby that's inside her. So, you know, I'm just not one that thinks the government should be involved in my day to day life. The government should take care of roads and should collect money to help pay for those roads. And um, even schools, I'm starting to get pretty iffy on schools too, because they're just not doing a very good job. So anyways, no politics. I'm, I feel bad for the people in Greece. I feel bad for Europe. I feel bad for, uh, what is it, Austria shut down a few weeks ago, I think while we were at LDI, because I had an Austrian gentleman on my uh, podcast and he said, yeah, we're closing down. I don't even know if I can get home. Um you know, Germany, I think, has already shut down again. I know England's talking about some lockdowns again. It's just a friggin' mess. And I, I feel terrible for people. You know, my my company, Gear Source, obviously does a lot of business in Europe. We're hearing from people every day what's going on. And it's crazy because we're taking orders from companies. Let's say they'll buy 50 moving lights. And then three days later, they'll cancel because all of their shows for the next 30 days have canceled. I actually spoke with someone this morning who told me that um, everything up until I think March, he said, is completely canceled. Everything that was on his books until March is completely canceled. Now, I don't know if that's an exaggeration. I don't think so, because I tend to believe the person who told me. But um that's crazy. That's just like, oh my God, how can some of these companies survive? And I'm starting to hear of companies closing again. We're starting to see a lot of the bizarre acquisitions taking place again. A lot of companies are changing hands and they're ones that you kind of scratch your head and go, that's interesting. I'm not talking about rental companies rolling up or buying other rental companies. I'm talking about manufacturers buying rental companies, manufacturers buying distribution companies. Um, You know, to me, that looks like something that's necessary, not necessarily, sorry for using that word, but um, it's necessary, not really because it makes perfect business sense, but because maybe one company owed another company money, or I don't know what the conditions were that caused it, but it, I don't know. It, you know, this is, the, this is the nutty world we live in today. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel terrible for Europe. I still feel terrible for the folks in Asia. You know, there's companies in Asia that still haven't been able to reopen and do shows. 
you know, they've literally been closed for over 18 months. And I, I just don't know how you survive that. So anyways, all of that nonsense aside, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to this next gentleman. Um, Mr. Reedy is, is an interesting cat. I think you're going to find him to be uh, humorous and, and quite interesting. And so let's go ahead and welcome on Mr. Rocco Reedy. Mr. Rocco, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you today? Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Rocco Reedy Show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming at some point of this podcast recording, you're going to take over. So I might as well just call it the Rocco Reedy Show. So, uh, yeah. Well, so welcome. I appreciate you doing this. I mean, I, the reason I even reached out to you to do it is because I was intrigued by some of the stories you've been telling on Facebook. And, you know, I'm relatively surprised that our paths haven't crossed at some point because I'm a degenerate, you're a degenerate. <laughs> Usually degenerates find themselves together at some point, right? Uh, well, either, you know, opposites attract and likes repel. Uh-huh. But it does, it concerns me, you know, through the years as I've met people who do what we do for a living and see the ones that are still doing it or haven't been killed or frightened away into something else. Yeah. Is that, you know, it concerns me that a jury of my peers actually could exist. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Huh? There, you know, you're running low on those. Yeah. Well, no, it's just it's, it's nice to know. You know that which you know. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So, I mean, you you have a really compelling story. You've been doing this a little while. Uh, I'm thinking, what, thirty five, forty years. 45 years. You know, you don't look old enough to have been doing this for 45 years. You've got this quaff. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because people do comment a lot about my hair, but what one of my Rocco isms that people who know me or deal with me or have met me through the years is, um, as I'm out there working, I, tend to work extremely hard and I've always had this same long hair thing and my hair is always a fucking mess. Yeah. It's just nature of the beast, you know, and yeah. it, that's my look that I've developed for so many years. And as we're going along, when you work with certain people and, you know, certain people, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their race, not because of their religion or not because of their political beliefs are a little harder to work with than others. You mean artists or, oh. or just other No, people? actually, I, I, was, I was talking about Irish people. I, and, uh, <laughs> well, let's not be specific or anything. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> let's just call them ex-people. Uh, so anyway, when you're working with ex-people, yeah. they tend to be very, very passionate. Yeah. And when they come up and something, you know, everything, they're either in really, really good moods or really fucking pissed off. Okay. And when they come up to me and they go, Rocco! The guy over there took his case and he rolled it down the hill and he knocked it over his head and ran him on my cables and then he just ran off and left it behind him. What are you going to do about it? And I just look him square in the eye and I go, how's my hair? Is it okay? <laughs> that's pretty funny. That's a, that's well, a very words, good Jake Barry impersonation, by the way. Yeah, no, oh, fuck. Jake is not Irish. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. But it sounded a lot no, but, like him. That sounded a lot like no. Jake, though. No, actually, it's it's, it's more. Cats, it's somebody trying to call me. No, oh, fuck them. Yeah. Anyway, we're suddenly the busiest guys in show business. 
No, no. It's, you know, I, I have my period where all the telemarketers call me, and that's right now. Oh, so, excellent. Well, I'm not trying to well, sell you anything, I promise, Rocco. Well, how is the weather in, in Bangladesh right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I used, so anyway, to have, I used to have this thing, which I'm sure somebody will be disgusted when they hear it. But, you know, when, when I was walking down the street, and you know, you can kind of see out the corner of your eye when there's a homeless person who's coming to say, excuse me, you got any spare change? And uh, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to sort of rush up to them as they were coming towards me. And I go, hey, you got any spare change? And it just confuses the hell out of them sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> I was going to ask you that. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sure that makes me a bad person, but... Not at all. It's impossible yeah, it's... to stay a good person anymore. I just don't understand the boundaries now. No, but you, you can have fun with it, as you know. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I don't know if, if you're quite old enough to remember, but uh, back in the days before airport security and all that, when everybody was allowed to just wander up to the gates and all of that. Yeah, I do They remember. had these people who who hung out in the airport called Moonies. You remember that? Yes, of course. Yeah, especially in LAX. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they would come up to you and, you know, want to chat or, you know, tell you about the Lord and blah, blah, wolf, wolf and all that. Yeah. And, of course, when I'm going through the airport, this is back in the day. <laughs> back in the day when you used to take a rental car and leave it at the curb. Oh, my and go God. In Those were the days. Your flight. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you could get to the airport at, you know, six minutes before your flight and still make it. Yeah. It was amazing. Right, exactly. But when you th- when but you anyway. look back, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, it was kind of crazy that we had no security, you know? It was well, a little it, bit nuts. it didn't occur to anybody. Yeah, what could possibly like go wrong? Well, it's just it, all the things through the years that, you know, they do to protect people. Yeah. You know, for example, um, remember when it was Tylenol that someone tampered with. Right. And because of that one tampering, which they never caught anybody for, I don't yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but because of that, from forevermore, all pills are in sealed compartment things. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. But then then you consider, you know, going to the airport now. Yeah, the shoe thing. And because, one, well, yeah, because one guy who looked like Kramer tried to set his shoes on fire on a plane. Yeah. Forevermore, we have to take our shoes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's, you know? he's borrowing lighters from people trying to <laughs> light the fuse <laughs> on his freaking shoe, right? I mean, imagine you know? that scene. It's it's quite humorous. But, it's, I know. Just, but it's just, you know, forevermore, it's changed the I world and, and the way we live in and stuff. But, you know, we accept this change. But, in a lot but, of but doesn't it but concern you a little bit that, like, they've moved on, but we haven't? In other words, well, terrorists aren't looking at shoe bombs anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? They've moved way past that. And we're still stuck but, on the shoe yeah. bombs. So. But, but it's because we move faster now. Yeah. Because we get information instantly now. Yeah. You know? Which which is a double-edged sword, kind of, right? I, I don't fear change. I'm just glad that I fucking was young before yeah. it came up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's kind of true. I mean, it. I, have you traveled at all since this whole thing started? Not since uh, November of 2019. Yeah. Really? Not at all? Not yeah. a single flight? Nope. See, I've probably flown 30 times since November 2019. And yeah. it is a huge pain in the ass now. It really is. And it just, it keeps getting a little tiny bit worse every flight I take. 
You know, it's in some ways it gets better because now at least, you know, uh, flight attendants are getting a little friendlier again. They were getting a bit nasty when you gave them all these new rules that they could, you know, smack you on the wrist over or whatever. And now they're getting friendlier again. Um, But I still find that when you're checking in, like I always check in really early now because they don't understand the rules. I know them really well and I'm constantly looking for updates because, you know, they'll change the rules right before you get to the airport to check in. And all of a sudden you're not allowed to fly because like, for example, I flew back from Canada a couple of weeks ago, the night of my flight, the rule was changing from a three day prior to your flight test to a 24 hour prior to your flight test. And so I knew that the rule was changing at midnight that night. My flight was at one in the afternoon or whatever. I was good. But now, was people this a at the Canadian airport rule or a U.S. rule? That's a U.S. rule. Anyone flying oh, okay. into the U.S. now has to get a test within 24 hours, which, it, you know, it makes sense, I guess. But, you know, just those changes in rules, you got to be paying attention because if you show up at the airport and you didn't know that, they just turn you away. Yeah. Like there's no, okay, we'll let you pass this time. None of that. They just turn you away. So... Hmm. It's just, you know, like my family and friends and stuff will say to me, you know, Marcel, I don't even know why you bother with this travel thing. It's such a pain in the ass, but it's because, you know, I'm just not wired to sit still. I'm not wired to stay in one Well, place. and it's a necessity of, of doing what we do. Exactly. It's a necessity of, of being able to, and that's the only, I, it's my choice that I'm not traveling. Yeah. Partially because I'm looking at this whole thing going, I can't believe we're touring. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did I send you a picture of my helmet? I don't think you did, but I need that oh. now for the podcast. So you're going to have to send me that. Okay. Send me well, that. since you know the whole thing started um, in what March of 2020, mm-hmm. and during that period of time, I was going out and I was wearing a mask, as you did back then, yeah. and all the rest of that. But it occurred to me, okay, this mask is all fine and dandy, but you got these two great big pools of water in the middle of your face called eyeballs that are very susceptible. And, you know, same thing like just, they say, don't touch your eyes when you have a cold or you're going to get a cold or whatever. It's like, right. what will protect that? So I got with a company out of Salt Lake City called Microclimate Air who made a particulate inhibitor helmet oh for God. preventing dust and stuff like that from getting at you. And I got with them, and boring story short, we did some modifications to their helmet, some of which they they did gladly on my suggestion, some of which they didn't do because it would have made their helmet more expensive for a retail thing. But I wanted something that would grip your head better, sort of like a hard hat, like yeah. a hard hat suspension, and put it inside of this helmet. And so it grips your head, and la-di-da, off you go. And I also put in HEPA filters and fans inside of it. So it <laughs> circulates and it filters down to three microns, of which a COVID virus is seven microns. So this thing is 99.9% effective at blocking the COVID particulate. Does from it have Bluetooth in. speakers and like a hose that you can connect to a bong? Perhaps? I'm serious as a heart attack. That's why I've worn this thing everywhere yeah. since... Uh, I came out with it in September of 2020. I've worn it everywhere outdoors that I go. Because if I get COVID, I'm one of those highly susceptible people that will die from it. Right. Well, then you got to take it real seriously. 
I, I, I do. Real seriously. And, uh, you know, it, but it, I watch what's going on out there, and I get deeply concerned when I hear the stories of, you know, and I'm not going to name names of tours, but there's people out there getting COVID. Yeah. There's people out there that triple vaccinated that are getting COVID. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was vaccinated. I got COVID. My girlfriend got COVID. Her son got COVID. Uh, well, and most of the people you know, around me got COVID. I live in Florida, so you know we're we're you know the crazy people down south. And um, but you know, yeah, but I, I'm talking global. Yeah, this is where I live for the past 45 years, I've been traveling this whole fucking planet. Yeah, and everywhere except Antarctica, and people are basically the same. But this problem is global. This problem is not Republican or Democratic. This problem is not, you know, DNA manipulation by any government. It's not a Chinese plot. Why the fuck would they want to kill us? We're their best customers. For yeah. Fuck's sake. Yeah. You can't swing a cat without hitting something made in China. Yeah, that's true. Well. You know, this is a global thing where the living, breathing planet Earth has got a, its own parasite called human beings. Yeah. So what, what happens when you get a parasite? You develop an antibody in your yeah. system to get rid of the parasite. Yeah. And how perfect is this virus? It started off, it was just killing old people on boats. You know? Yeah. And then it developed into something that's going to attack the entire planet. Yeah. But initially, it was killing old, sick people. So as far as culling the herd, it's the perfect fucking, it's better than bullets. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a but sense, in a sense, but yeah. now, now, you know, I don't know. I know a lot of healthy people who have gotten it too, but I don't know a lot of healthy people who have died from it. I, I can't tell you of one, to be perfectly honest with you, but um, I'm sure there are some, you know, it, it definitely attacks the weak or the, the, you know, whatever, so people who have whatever they call comorbidities or prior problems or whatever, right? I don't know. I'm yeah. not a doctor, Me but, I, but I play one on television. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get yeah. off the COVID thing because I really exactly. have sworn not to talk about it. And uh, <laughs> I hate what it's done to people. I hate what it's done to friendships and families. And I hate what it's done to our industry. You know, I, I know yeah. way too many people who have either committed suicide or lost everything or, you know, lost their company or whatever. It's, it's a terrible, terrible time we've gone through. And I just hope we see the blue sky side of this real soon, you know, completely. But oh, well, we will, you know, yeah. it's, it's just my only, the only touch off that I'd like to get off the subject with is to say that I think everyone needs to be careful. Of course. And if you recall, before 2020, the last thing that we were living in fear of and touring was terrorists and active shooters. Yeah. All that went away. Yeah, nobody so, talks so about that anymore. At least there's one good thing. Yeah. So, I thought you were going to say the Me Too movement, because I, I used to always say, wait till this gets to rock and roll. <laughs> you know, the whole Me well, Too but, thing. But the, the, you know, and that's the thing I've looked at for years. As far as I'm concerned, it was not, you know, we didn't go out raping and pillaging. Mm -hmm. We went out and there was no diseases or anything like that. And women would come up to us and, and tell us what they were going to do us. I was in tears. I was so scared. It, no. Yeah. It was part of the environment that we were living in at the time. Yeah. And it has all true. changed. And it's changed drastically. Everything in life. Is oh, yeah. You know? No, I mean, you uh, concert touring. If you want to get laid anymore, you don't talk a chick up. You text her. Yeah, you know? that's, that's funny. Like, 
Really? Text, text her pictures of someone else's libido. And junk, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, check this out. <laughs> and then, boy, is she disappointed. All of this can be yours as opposed to, you want to meet the band? Oh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'm sure hey, it still geez. works. You know, on, on rat tours and, and uh, stuff like that, I hear that still works, you know, that kind of thing. So... But the, you know, the, the whole thing is it's changed into a business. Yeah, of course. You know, you get and I think on the on multi-billion the dollar multi-billion dollar companies that are public, like Live Nation, become involved. Of course, it's going to become a business. You know. Well, but not only that. For you know, I mean, I have not blown my own horn. I was fortunate enough for the past thirty years to work for the biggest band in the whole fucking planet. Yeah. As far as spending money and earning money and all yep. that stuff. Yeah. You too, so, of course. I, I think all of that is coming to a drastic end. And the reason I say that is I don't see on the horizon any U2s, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyds, stadium side, you know, sell out multiple nights in, in Chicago. What about Taylor Swift, band. sir? Well, he tried that. No, <laughs> no but I mean, I mean some of the big, some of the yeah. huge hip hop artists, you know, the, the, I forget what's the guy with the tattoos on his face. Uh, all of them. That but, guy. You know, yeah, all of them. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hardcore when but you get it, tattoos on your face. That's got to hurt. No, but but what I'm saying is that everything happens much quicker. Yeah. I'll give you an example. There was, in the 2013, there was two kids. Somebody suggested I go see play. And as I said, I live in Columbus, Ohio. I've been cleaning this over for 30 years. I don't go to any place that serves alcohol. Okay. Period. Ever, ever, not even a restaurant. So I don't go to bars and see bands. So I live very low key here. I live very under the radar when I come home. I spend time with my wife and my pets and down in the basement playing with my uh, guitars. Yeah. So anyway, somebody suggested I go see this band. I go, well, I don't go to bars. They go, well, they're playing at a church, actually. I go, oh. Well, I don't go to church either, but <laughs> as long as there's no booze there, I'll go oh, check them God. out. So I went to go see them, and it wasn't my cup of tea musically. But I liked them. As a musician, I liked them because they just had this quirky little pop sound and they were weird. But I was like, okay. And I said, look, if I can help you out, I'd like to help you out. So I took them under my wing, helped them out, and they became one of the biggest bands in the world, 21 Pilots. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. So you caught them when so, they were really young and new and fresh? They were being seen by 15 people in a church. That's wow. That's what I for it. So, how, so did, anyway, how did you take it, them under your wing? Did you become their manager or something? No, they had a manager. Oh, okay. Um, uh, they had also some of their buddies from high school who was their tour manager and their business manager and blah, blah, you know, down the line. And, you know, they came from their roots. So I came in and I said, look, I'll help you out. I'll help you do a big hometown show. So I got all a bunch of gear for nothing and uh, put it all together for them. And then I took them out when I was production manager for Fallout Boy and Panic at the Disco, and they were on the same label. So we being a package, it was 21 Pilots on the bottom of that. I took them under my wing there. But um, I am a cocky, egotistical old fart. And I uh, said to the singer one day, I go, do you think you'll outgrow your management? And he told his manager, I said that. So he said, I don't want you guys ever talking to Rocco again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really? So they, yeah. So they went from there to uh, becoming the biggest band in the world. But then 
they got canceled. Yeah. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Okay, well, what happens is apparently on Twitter or Tweet or one of those social media things, if you say something stupid, then they cancel you. Well, or if you say something that someone thinks is stupid, you know, because right, there's two exactly. sides of every one of these topics. Right, so, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, he, he didn't say anything stupid. He said something funny. Uh, somebody said, you should use your platform to address social issues like Black Lives Matter. And he came back with a picture of himself and some tennis shoes that were like kiss boots. You know, they were platform tennis shoes. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, you're right. I should whip these babies out. I haven't had my platforms out in years. Oh, my goodness. And that was Which that? That was it. Oh, my God. That's ridiculous. And that's what I'm saying. Is It is ridiculous. Yeah. But that's what decides your career. Here's a band that had an album out that had more certified gold singles on it than either the Beatles or Elvis. Jesus. In 2018. I, yeah, and I read that, and I'm going, oh, that's going to go over like a turd in a punch bowl of a church social. You don't say that. It's the same as when the Beatles said, we're more important to Christians than Jesus. You know, and it was taken completely out of context, completely overblown. Anyway, you know, suddenly these guys went from the biggest band in the world to then their latest album just came out, and within five weeks it was gone Yeah, off the top 100. But That's, that doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. The top one, nobody buys albums. You yeah. buy albums? No. No, I don't. Okay. You know, the only person who buys albums is 65-year-old men. Yeah. And the, and the reason they do it is because they're not really sure how to steal it. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, this is a fact. You well, know? I'm, I'm proud to say I've never stolen. Like, I, I never did the Napster thing. When iTunes came out, I started buying music, and, and I haven't really stopped. But I just do it differently now. Like, I pay for Apple Music Unlimited and, and Amazon right. Music Unlimited and all that shit, right? Uh, Spotify. So... Which, yeah, right, it's but, just convenient. Like, it's cool that you can now search for a song from 50 years ago that is so obscure by some weird Canadian band, and it's there. Plateau. Plateau? Plateau. Oh, oh, my God. I haven't heard that name in a thousand years. Jesus. All right. And what was their big hit? I can't remember that. Calling Occupants of Interplanetary. Oh, I remember it. Oh my right. God! But, but they didn't make millions off of it. Jesus, I'm going to have to go look who, that up again here shortly. You know who? All right, hang on. I'm, I'm an encyclopedia. Do you know who made the money off of it? Clatu didn't. Well, they did because they wrote it. But the person who recorded it and sold it as a single that made it up to number six on the top 100 was the Carpenters. Really? Yeah. That's wild. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the other day, uh, a Platinum Blonde song came on, and I was like, holy Christ, I haven't heard that one since, like, 1982. But, platinum Blonde or Concrete Blonde? No, Platinum Blonde is a Canadian. It was Canada's version of uh, Duran Duran, basically. Oh, okay. These guys with really poofy hair that all went one direction, you know, to the left or whatever. <laughs> and it was all the same color of Platinum Blonde, and, you know, they danced like the Duran Duran guys and stuff. They were like sort of a, a B version of Duran Duran, I guess. Um, but they did okay in Canada. Most of the bands that got big in Canada never got out of Canada. 
Mm-hmm. You know, a few did. Rush, Triumph, um, Loverboy, Brian Adams, you know, some of the ones that we're not real proud of. Celine Dion. <laughs> but uh, Be careful. You So far, you sounded like my resume. But <laughs> That's pretty funny. So let's get to you here. So how how did this where did this begin? Like I I just remember reading that you you were like a guitar player who worked on guitars or something and suddenly you're out touring. So fill in the gap for me there. Well, way way long time ago. I was growing up in Chicago. Yeah. And I was playing in, you know, miscellaneous bands in grade school and high school playing and I remember having arguments as you know, I was lamenting after the death of Mike Nesmith. I remember having arguments saying the monkeys are where it's at, man. The Beatles are on drugs. You want to, if you want to get hired to play the sock hop, you got to play monkeys. Okay. But that was 1967. So anyway, years later, I, uh, didn't get better at playing, but I got better at fixing, fixing up guitars. Cause in Chicago, you could find, you know, in garage sales and stuff like that, you could find relatively nice guitars. Um, you know, for dirt cheap. So I would buy them and I'd fix them up and then trade them and sell them, you know, with the other uh, guitar players and band players in the Chicago suburbs I lived in. Right. And then it turned into, uh, back in the day, you didn't have Craigslist. You didn't have eBay. You had a thing called the Trading Times in Chicago. It was a publication. There was no Chicago Music Exchange yet either, right? Right. Yeah. Right. This was way before it. Right. So it was a paper that came out. It was printed on Wednesday and came out on Thursday at the news agency. Well, I found out where they printed it. And I would go there uh, at 5 o'clock on Wednesday night, get a copy of it, hot off the press, because they'd made friends with the, uh, the guys in there. I'd bring them cheeseburgers from McDonald's back when it was 15 cents for a cheeseburger. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. you know, I'd come in there, get a copy of it, and I'd go on the south side of Chicago that no white kid in his right mind would go to after dark wearing a satin ball jacket because that was popular back then. Um, and I'd buy like a 57 Strat, which in 1972, a 57 Strat was only 15 years old. Right. I could buy, And I could buy it from some lady whose husband was in, the, in jail or whatever, you know, who was a blues player on the south side. So she needed the money. And I'd pay 200 bucks cash a 57 Strat in mint condition. Then I would take it down and, you know, I would, you know, trade it back and forth to the kids and people around Chicago and stuff like that. And I got really good at setting stuff up because I was taught to set up string instruments by a violin repairman. And I worked in a music store that uh, rented instruments to high schools and junior highs and stuff like that, horns, string instruments, stuff like that. So we would take all these industrial strength Suzuki violins and I have to, you know, fix them up and replace the sound posts in them and take the chewing gum out of the F holes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so I got pretty good at uh, a string is a string, a straight line. Yeah. And you build the instrument around that straight line and you get better balance from that. So you just have to consider, you know, that perfection is not where it comes from. It comes from just having a wind, like a Winchester rifle, every fender strat, from 1954 to now, you can take any part of any one and put it on another one, and it works. Because hmm. it's exactly the same. I never actually knew so, that. 
I should have. Well, no. But I well, didn't. yeah. But, but anyway, um, so I got pretty good at setting stuff up. And then I realized uh, somebody was coming to town. Who was it? Oh, it was Genesis. And in 1973, I went down when they were playing at Northwestern University at McGraw Hall. And I hung around the backstage door about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And when they came up in their limousines and saw me standing out there with some tweed cases, they stopped the car, rolled down the window, and said, hey, mate, what's up there? So I sold their guitar techs, everything I had. I had like six guitars. And, I, you know, but I made a good profit. I bought them for 300 bucks. I would sell them for 1500 bucks. But he would take them and go back to England and sell them for Two thousand twenty five hundred three grand sometimes, you know. Uh-huh. So everybody it was a win win situation for everyone. But every time they would come back to Chicago, they would go see their guy, and you know, word of mouth back then was the only way your reputation spread. That and small business cards. You, know, so, you give somebody a business card, and hopefully somebody else passed it along. You know. So you became known as like you know the go to guy for some of these vintage guitars and stuff. Is that what it was? Yeah, I called myself the rock and roll doctor. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. I would think that it means something completely different if I looked at a business card that said the rock and well, roll doctor. I'd think exactly. I was getting like a yeah, exactly. tetracycline yeah. or something, you know. Not, right, but, uh, not a guitar but funny tuning. Story, funny story about back then. In 1973 was when I met Jeff. 1974, I went to a, a rock festival in Sedalia, Missouri called the Ozark Mountain Rock Festival. And it uh, was a three-day thing. And keep in mind, this is 1974, so it's five years after Woodstock. Yeah. And they were trying to emulate that kind of vibe, get a half a million people there. They almost did. They had about 300,000 come there. Wow. But I, I went there with a business card and totally bullshitted my way into the backstage. Just, you know, said that so-and-so from Bachman Turner over I was waiting for me and I had some guitars warm. I showed up with just a little blue toolbox with some guitar repair tools and a cardboard sign and a card table. And I set up in the backstage area with little things that guitar repair and set up. And everybody was bringing their guitars over there. You know? That's hilarious. So like, because back then, you, you didn't have a guitar tech. You had roadies. Yeah. And guys, you know, tune their own guitar. Hey, have you watched the Beatles thing yet? Yeah. Oh, my God. It just blew me away. Completely, blew I know, me but, away. but just was there any strobe tuners anywhere? No, I no. mean it was hilarious. Could you play a chord so I could tune it a little closer to the whole chord, not like just one note? They're getting so that uh, was life. That was life back then, uh, and we're crazy. playing on a stage where there was three stacks of sound, not hangs, but stacks of Heil sound speakers. So you had two performance areas, and then one set of sound off stage left, one off stage right, and one right in the middle. So while you're one band is playing on one side, the next band is tearing down and setting up the next one, and they're just going back and forth. Oh, I see. Okay. So, and it was, you know, for the time, it was pretty together. There was no lights hung above the stage. It's just these big canvas things. Anyway, um, I sat up there, and just I was doing acid for three days, actually two days, because after two days of doing acid, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, but met a lot of people. Yeah. And just kept handing out all these cards that said rock and roll doctor on it. And then it just spread. Yeah. Huh. It was like, and that's what, and rock, every rock star, you know, once they have their secret, 
And yeah, so it's got this, this bloke is in Chicago, mate. He gets all these guitars. Yeah. And, you know, I would put, I would put stories behind them. I would buy these, you know, like a 57 Strat. I keep saying that one because for some reason there was tons of them on South Lake Chicago yeah, at that yeah. point. And I would buy them and they'd be in mint condition. And when I would take them down and show them to these English bands, they go, man, this is, this is phony. It's bogus. It's counterfeit. It's too clean. You know, if this is a real blues guitar, it would be, you know, beat up. It would have, you know. So what I started doing was aging them. This is long before the Fender Custom Shop. You know? Yeah. And I would take the Strat bodies, and my mom came home. My parents had one of those big freezers, and they'd buy half a cow at a time. Yeah. You know, Everyone's parents had those back then. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So my mom comes in with half a cow in the car, and she goes, could you give me a hand putting the meat in the freezer? And I, oh, hang on. I got some stuff in there I got to take out. She's like, what? And I bring the meat down, and she opens it up, and there is four Strat bodies sitting in the freezer. Well, that's, that's how you do that, uh, that worn look? Weather crack. Really? That weather crack. Yeah. Oh, I didn't well, know that. that. I have a... I have, a newer have you ever heard of Nash? Nash guitars yeah. out of like Seattle or whatever. Yeah, I have a yeah. I have a Nash uh, Strat that everyone who plays it says it's probably the nicest sixty one or two Strat they've ever played. Because I bought like the Fender Spaghetti logo to put on it, you know, and it's right. it's a Nash guitar, you know, it's not even a Fender, uh, but it's beautiful. Yeah. But it's like that. Well, it's got that warmth, and that's a, that's always been my attitude is that I can make anything play good, really. Yeah, unless it's a complete chunk of shit. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a piece of wood, and you just got to follow the straight line of the string. It's all about the string. Yep. Your tone doesn't come from anything except your hand. Yeah, right? yeah. So let, anyway, let me tell you a quick story along the line yeah. of what you just said. The the you know two hundred dollar guitar or whatever. So I had a little guitar store in Edmonton, Canada, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and um, I had a kid come in. Uh, and he had, he goes, do you guys buy guitars? He called me and said, do you guys buy guitars? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, uh, I've got one that I'm going to bring in. So he brings it in and I see, like, I think it was a tweed case. Um, I don't remember, but it was a beat up case. And I'm like, ooh. So he throws it up on the counter and I open the case and I'm looking at it in in just complete shock. Like he's... He's uh, scraped off the Fender logo. It's it's a '62 Strat, but it's painted Eddie Van Halen colors. And right. so the story was this kid's grandfather gave it to him uh, as a birthday present or something. He played it a little bit, you know, screwed it all up, painted it, and all that stuff. So long story short, I I bought it from him for four hundred dollars. This was in probably nineteen eighty five or something, and right. um, I ended up selling it to um, somebody. Something to do with Kiss. I don't remember if it wasn't. It was way before Doc, but um, I don't remember who. It's something to do with Kiss. Bought it for ten thousand dollars at the time. And all we did was we basically took it, we refinished it back to the original color, got the logo fixed back onto it, and just made it original again, basically, and sold it for ten grand. Wow! Yeah, that was that was the best deal I ever did on a used guitar. So no, it's been a long time since I've hustled guitars, as far as you know, buying them and selling them and you know, doing that. Now I just buy them. Mm. But. 
And I just sell them. <laughs> well, the thing is, I have in the basement, I have 50 guitars. Jesus. But I'm cheating, actually. I have actually 49, but one of them's a double neck. So I say I have 50 guitars. And out of those 50 guitars, 27 of them are signed by different bands that I've worked for. Oh, wow, yeah. So they've got okay. meaning. But, but, when I had them sign them, keep in mind I've been doing this for 45 years, so when I had them sign them, the first couple were signed like, oh, Rocco, great working with you, you're a hard worker, blah, 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 love you, and you sign their name. Which is boring, ah, 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 puke. Yeah. Um, so, so after that, I would get, you know, I'd go out and I'd say, guys, look, I've had this guitar with me through this entire leg, and uh, it's been on the bus with me, and I'll always think of you whenever I play it. I was wondering if you could um, sign it so it's worth a fuckload of money when you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I asked them to write just completely filthy, horrible, vile stuff about me, and they do. You know, um, I've got a 76 black Gibson Explorer that I had Def Leppard sign. Joey Elliott wrote across it, Hey, Rocco, you suck. <laughs> uh, the drummer, Rick, drew a little stick figure of himself with one arm holding a drumstick and a great big fucking crank hanging down. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, but it's just, you know, it's goofy shit like that because they know I will never sign, sell it. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's made to me and, you know, it only means something to me. And, you know, I'm sure once I die, my wife will sell it to the Hard Rock Cafe or some shit like that. Right, but yeah. In the meantime, it's, just, it's a lot more fun. Or I'll have them, you know, write some little story on there. It's funny, when I had 21 pilots sign one, they're Christians and they don't know how to swear. And I said, write something really dirty on there. So he wrote, dear Kako, suck a fuck. <laughs> what the fuck that <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, because they're, but they're just they're they're lovely, lovely guys. I really I, I want them to do well, and you know I have nothing against them or their manager, but they you know I helped them out. They chose when a they direction. Had, had nothing, yeah. and you know, but the the only advice I gave them, I go, look, save your money. Yeah, because all the people that you have to step on to get to the top, you're going to see them again on the way down. Yeah, that's and that's so true. that's where I was going with that story about them is that you know, and I hope they succeed, and I hope they do well. I'm, I'm sure they'll go out and their live show is fucking amazing. Yeah. But it's nothing new, you know? Yeah. I came, I came up with all these goofy things I've always wanted to try. I took, I made a four foot by six foot by two inch drum riser, mounted a kick snare hi-hat and a stool to it, put 40 feet of rope on it and made a crowd surfing drum riser. <laughs> That's funny. And they, they still use it to this day. Really? But the point is, but, you know, it's, it's not a question of who came up with it first. It's a question of entertainment. Yeah. You know? So how did you get that, from this, this you know, rock doctor uh, guitar thing to being a touring guy? Oh, um, on the suggestion after I went to that Sedalia, Missouri thing and got known amongst more people, Jeff Banks who was the guy with Genesis, who originally I would sell stuff to and he'd take him back to England, had told me that I should get a gig as a guitar tech because he really loved the way I set up guitars. Uh. Uh, and it had never occurred to me, but I was like, okay, well. I said, what do you suggest I do? He goes, well, find yourself some young upcoming band in Chicago and it, you know, just start working for them. And oddly enough, um, 
about a year later, Six is looking for a guitar tech. So I applied for the job and I got it. Based on just word of mouth about how you were setting up guitars yeah. or cause you, yeah. you had and no touring experience at that point, right? No, but, but people in Chicago knew who I was. I did a lot of work for, you know, uh, studios and stuff like that where right. they'd call me in if they were trying to get a sound or, you know, wanted to try some different guitars and, you know, so I'd stop by and I knew people. You weren't a, you weren't a luthier or anything. You were just a guy who, who bought guitars and knew how to set them up the way that you wanted to play them. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I knew Paul Hamer. Yeah. I knew, I I knew Paul really well. Uh, I was his, I was his only retailer in Canada for a long time. I got some really funny Paul Hamer stories. Oh, that another time. Like I say, it was a simpler time back then. Yeah. In Chicago, there wasn't, you know, there was bands out of Chicago, but nobody really from the core of Chicago in the mid 1970s that was making it on an international level. Right. And Sticks Sticks was playing high schools all around Chicago for years because they didn't want to be a bar band. They wanted to be a concert band. And uh, I would see them when they were playing at different places. I opened for them at a couple of different places, just little, you know, uh, roller skating arenas and shit like that. Where you come in, no lights, just sound system, and fucking play really loud. Were you trying to make it as a musician, or were you were you sort of looking past that and going, you know, I think I'm going to support musicians instead? I was I was trying to make it as a musician, and I made one last ditch effort where I just put everything into it, got a place to rehearse, you know, bought equipment, got all the right players, and just when we were about to go out and do a showcase, the guitar player fucked off. And I was like, okay, well, so much for that idea. And uh, from you, there, at usually that point, it's the drummer who screws everything up, not the guitar player. I don't know what it is. It's well, the drummer, the drummer was sleeping on my couch, so I had a captive audience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he needed you. But anyway, I was out, you know, I was working a regular day job. And from there, I was like, yeah, maybe I should just try and start a music store or something like that. So I started a little guitar shop. And it did, didn't do particularly well, but there was more the repair thing. Right. And, uh, you know, plus when I, you know, English band would come to town, if I could sell two guitars that I paid a total of $400 for and get three grand for them, in 1975, a profit margin of two grand a month under the table, Yeah, I was living like a king. Yeah, that was real money. Yeah. That was a license to do blow. Yeah. 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 And so, maybe even pay rent. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, um, the gig from with there, sticks. yeah, I got this gig with sticks and I didn't, you know, I didn't go through any of the playing in bars shit or playing in smaller places. I started with them right when they exploded, right oh, when wow. Grand Illusion came out and sticks was their manager at the time was very shrewd, uh, Derek Sutton. And he was very smart about when and where we would tour. You could tour all over America during the summertime anywhere. But in the wintertime, when no one in their right mind would be out touring, like January, we'd be up in Canada playing every hockey arena up there because during the winter, the only thing going on was hockey and sticks. <laughs> and we were and we were huge in Canada for, you know, years before yeah. um, you know, they took off elsewhere. Well, I remember, I think I saw Sticks, the album with, uh, with light up on it and, uh, 
Sweet Mademoiselle. I think I saw that tour. Yeah, Crystal Ball, I think. Yeah, that's what it was called. Crystal Ball, exactly. Yep. In Canada. So anyway, I, I stuck with them through their career, and I, you know, they paid me all year round because they were working constantly. And if they weren't touring, they were in the studio working on another record. Yeah. So, and I had endeared myself with them. They were good friends of mine, but it taught me a great many things. Amongst them was um, if you make too much money, then you have to develop a cocaine habit. Yeah. If you, you know, if you have a cocaine habit, you got dozens of friends and the fun never ends as long as you're buying. Yeah. Ain't that true? There's a lyric there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, wait, it is a lyric. Yeah. But but that was the life we were living. And they were, you know, the biggest band in the world. Back then, bands made millions. You released a record, and the first day, you would sell 10 million copies. Yeah. So everybody was just filthy, stinking rich, and throwing money away. And we were the biggest tour ever. Five semi-trucks of equipment. Yeah. I do that on my lunch break now, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, plus, plus back then touring, they weren't looking to make money on touring. They, they were spending money on touring to sell records. So you had record company reps that were out taking care of you. And yeah, I mean, they were just throwing money at tours. Well, yeah, but we were making ridiculous amounts of money and they were selling tons of uh, records because they were getting radio airplays because we had another guy we went around to the radio stations a week before we got there and he you know, bumped everybody up. All the disc jockeys filled their noses with cocaine. Right. And they would play all the six records, you know, for a week before we got there. So the shows would sell out. People would buy cassettes, eight tracks and albums and everybody's happy days, man. It was great. Yeah. 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 But then the eighties came along and in the eighties sticks eventually started falling apart. And at that point in time, being in Chicago, I was like, hmm, i got to find me another band to work with. So after Stick stopped touring, I went to work for Survivor. Oh. And I had a tremendous history with them. Um, just real quick, just to keep you up to date on who and what Survivor is, the main guy behind Survivor is a guy named Jim Peterick. When he was 16 years old, he had a band in Chicago that was very successful, and a big hit song called Vehicle. Okay. I'm a friendly stranger in a black sedan. Won't you hop inside my car? Big rap sound, you know. Yeah. Uh, blood, sweat, and tears kind of a... When he was 16 years old. That was Jesus. Jim Peter. So anyway, uh, after that... And that's the same guy who started Survivor. After that, um, they died in a plane crash. Who did? The guys from Eyes of March. Oh, no, not all of them, but, you know, uh, I think three or four of them. So the, the band kind of fell apart and was devastated and all that. But Jim kept writing because he was a great songwriter and stuff like that. And he did a couple of solo records, and that's how I met him with his solo records. And I said, Jim, you're going to be huge someday. I, you know, I want to work with you and help you out. And he's, you know, he's my age, but, you know, by the same token, I put together a show for him at my high school's auditorium. And I did put three shows on sale, having no idea how to be a promoter or how to sell tickets. All that. And I think the tickets were like $3 or something like that. So he goes, okay, but we're going to call this new band that I put together Survivor. Wow. Okay, why is that? 
He goes, because I survived the plane crash. Yeah. Jesus. I, I like, had no wow. idea. I didn't know that. So anyway, so he, you know, they, we did their first thing and I lost my aunt. I lost like 1500 bucks, which was a lot of money at the time. But I followed it up the following weekend doing a show with Coco Taylor and Muddy Waters. And I made tons of money off of that. I made all the money back. But it established me as a friend of the band with Survivor and wanted to help them out. So they went along and they had a couple of records come out. But it wasn't until, obviously, the Eye of the Tiger thing yeah. that they exploded. So, How did you uh, lose money, though? You, you promoted the gig or what? Yeah, I oh. sold three shows. And I had no idea. You know, I was like, okay, well, we'll do it on a Friday night and then two shows on Saturday. One at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One at seven o'clock. Okay. <laughs> Nobody comes to a show yeah. at three o'clock. Yeah. Afternoon. How how could that? Let feel? alone, let alone it's a new guy or a guy called Jim Peterick who had some following, who had just changed the name to Survivor. Hmm. You know, so and we we didn't promote it. We played some of the stuff on the radio. Whatever, lost my ass, but it was a great show and a great band. And they developed. So I started working for them. First of all, I started off as a keyboard tech, working for Jim because he was playing keys, and. uh, Back then, they didn't have MIDI or sequencers or any shit like that. No in-ear monitors. So, to make it sound like the record, I would play off-stage keys, little string parts and stuff on a, a separate keyboard. Ah. While Jim was out on stage, well, they weren't paying me extra to do it, and I was like, "Well, fuck it." And one day, we were on a stage where my keys couldn't be all the way off-stage, so I set up right behind the rig. But you could see me from the front. The guitar player's like, I don't want people to see you there. You know, pay no attention to the man behind it. Set up a curtain or something like that. And I was like, fuck you, you know? Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to stand out on stage and I'm going to fucking play. And Jim goes, if Rocco wants to do it, Rocco can do it. So I stood on stage and played. I didn't get paid. But yeah. that was interesting only because being a musician, I knew how their songs went. We were, during their 15 minutes of fame, we were doing a show down in Tampa at a place that used to be an air dome at 10,000 capacity at the university there. Okay. And, and the opening act had played, and in the 30-minute set change in between, the bass player suddenly collapsed. He had, we found out later after they rushed him to the hospital that he burst an ulcer in his stomach because he drank cheap wine and did blow all the time. Yikes. You know, led an unhealthy lifestyle. So the promoter's freaking out. The band is freaking out. And I go, hey, guys, no offense, but your music ain't rocket science. From playing keys, I know how the stuff goes. I'll just stand behind Jim, watch his left hand, and I'll play bass, and we'll get through the show. And the manager was there. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do the promoter. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like they had a ton of options, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you cancel the gig, or here's Rocco. Yeah, so... I played bass and they did a good job. So after they found out that the bass player was going to be knocked out for five to six weeks, they said, look, why don't you carry on as production manager, but also play bass. And the manager is like, we'll pay an extra 600 bucks a week. I was like, Oh, cool. You know, Huge money. 1985. That's yeah. big money. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I would, you know, it's a little two truck tour. I would go out, do the load in, um, put the opening act on, go into the dressing room, take a shower, put on the leather pants, poof up my uh, permed hair. That is crazy. Go back out, call, call house lights, shoot the set change, call house lights again, put the bass on, go out, play the show. 
come back off, call house lights. Oh my do the load God, out, that's nuts. Out. That is oh, crazy. Great. So you but were in Survivor for a couple months. Uh, for 13 shows. Jeez, that's, yeah. that's wild. What a great but, story. You know, but that's pre, but, that's pre Eye of the Tiger. No, that's after Eye. Oh, oh, so yeah, they were a pretty big band at that know, point. Yeah, there's, uh, the next album when they had a bunch of hits on High on You and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, the, the payback was after I finished doing this thing, I went to, called up the manager because you didn't have email back then. Called him up and said, hey, uh, remember that 600 bucks a week you were going to pay me? He's like, yeah, well, actually, I was talking to the guitar player, and he feels that you should just be happy to put it on your resume that you played with Survivor. No way. And we're not going to pay you extra. And he didn't pay me. No. So I said, I said, okay, well, you can find yourself another production manager. So I moved on. What a, and I, what a piece of shit that is. I mean, that's Yes, but no, but, you know, but things, you know. Karma comes back on everybody. Yeah. You and I both know that in this business. No, nah, but that's so terrible. I mean, you you basically helped save them, you know, in a bind and all that stuff. Made it real easy. They weren't going to get another bass player for six hundred bucks a week, you know, including because they were already paying your expenses and everything else, right? Guess what? What? I'm over it. Yeah, I was way over it. Way yeah, but now I'm pissed it. off, Rocco. <laughs> now no, I'm but- mad. <laughs> No, but you know what? It's just it's what happens in this business. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 from there, I moved on. Yeah. And from there, I went to work as production manager for the Kinks, which is a, a wonderful experience. But I also, from there, used that experience to say, I'm never again going to get too close to my employers. It's important. You know, it's great if you can be friends, but it's important to maintain that employee-employer distance. Yeah. Because that's how you get business done, you know. To be you have to be Great business. Great advice. Well, it's it's it, it, it taught me then, and I've used it ever since. Yeah, and I, and I love the artists that I work with, but you know what? I want to be their best friend. Yeah, I'm there because they're at the point in their career where they can afford the best, and the only reason that I'm the best is because I work my fucking balls yeah, off. Yeah, because you work harder than the next guy. Well, and, you know, why do I work that hard? I think it's a Catholic guilt thing, really. But, you know, it's like, it's it's its own reward. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially after I got clean and sober and met my wonderful wife. Yeah. And, you know, and just, and she's put up with me and never left me for 30 years. Now that I'm home all the time, though, I think she's ready to shoot me. But, yeah. you know, point, point being is it's hard enough to maintain any semblance of normality. Yeah. When you're on the road all the time. Yeah. Hey, I, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I read somewhere that you uh, sort of had an acting debut while you were with Sticks too, in in one of their videos. Oh, I was yeah, I was in the Mr. Roboto video. I was so gacked, I tripped going up the stairs. So go back to YouTube and look it up, and you'll see one of the four robots tripping going up the stairs. That's I gotta check that out. That's hilarious. so you were yeah. Mr. Roboto, or one of yeah, them. like I say. All the little things I can put on my resume. I played bass with Survivor. I'm not sure. You know what else? So, like, you probably have to close your mouth at dinner parties because, you know, like, I even find that problem. I go out for dinner with people, and next thing you know, they don't want to talk anymore. They don't want to tell stories or anything because my life's way more interesting than theirs. And Well, and that's why when I go to dinner parties, because my wife's an attorney. Yeah. So, you know, I have to go to... Lawyer things. Yeah. And so, yeah. 
And, uh, but what I find is, you know, first of all, and what do you do for this? Oh, I love trucks. Yeah. Yeah. You okay. sort of unromance it <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, it comes out, okay, you work with this thing. Or, but what it more comes down to is I don't want to deal with getting people tickets. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I don't blame you. And, That's, and through the years, it's, you know, it's always, hey, can you get me? Yeah. Yeah. Or, hey, how are you? Nope. Just calling to check in, not looking for nothing, you know. And by the end of the call, guess what? They're looking for something. But I, I think one of the greatest changes in our industry ever was when they created that VIP ticket office thing where it was like, yep, sure. Send an email to this person. They'll take good care of you, you know? Yeah. And, and just tell them you're one of our suppliers or whatever. Right. And, um, as a supplier, I never minded paying for tickets. I, I, and I actually preferred it to having to ask someone for a favor. I don't like asking for favors. So, um, yeah, you know, I, so was the whole survivor thing, was that what started the, you know, I got to get on stage with the band thing. Cause you sure seem to do that a whole lot through your career. No, I'm just a big fucking ham, but yeah. How did At that one all point happen time, though? Like how did, cause it, I, you know, I see all these videos of you with everyone. Well, I just, you know, it's sort of like a dog that does a trick. The thing is after my experience of wanting, giving it one more good old go, of trying to make it as a musician. The one thing I didn't like, cause I'm, I, I was just a harsh taskmaster. I made everybody practice, 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 practice. And we were really fucking good, but we weren't, you know, we weren't spectacular. We weren't the fucking Beatles. We weren't, you know, the next Elvis. We were just good. Yeah. And I was so fucking bored with playing those songs. Yeah. Over and over and over. But I learned how to perform. And there's a difference between a good musician and a performer. Yep. A performer has to get up there and make that big hit song that they hate playing night after night look like the coolest fucking song that's ever been played. Yeah. Because the most important, and I say this to every employee I ever work with in one form or another, diplomatically so, but essentially I say to them, look, you're not the most important fucking person in the building. And neither am I. It's those people out there who work their ass off to buy a ticket to take their girlfriend or their wife or their buddy down to see your rock show. And you better fucking put out for them because they don't care if you're hungover. They don't care that your ex-wife is taking your money away from you. They want to hear the big hit fucking song and you got to play it good. And you got to play it like it's the coolest fucking song ever. And if if an artist doesn't get that, then I don't want to work for them. Yeah, I've never been fired from a tour, but I have walked off three tours because I felt they didn't get it. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't matter who they are. Well, you know what? Yeah. Like I, I'll tell you what. You know, I never wanted to see Kiss again, and Doc <laughs> McGee calls me and he goes, "Hey, we're in town in you know whatever f- three weeks or something. How many tickets you want?" And I go, "Uh." So, you know, my girlfriend's British and she had never seen a rock concert before. You know, she, she literally had never seen a rock concert before. So I go, Hey honey, you want to go see Kiss? And she says, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd love to. So I show her a bunch of Kiss videos and I'm, I'm like, are you sure you want to see Kiss? And I hadn't seen Kiss probably in 15, 20 years. I don't know. Right. So 
so this was like 2019, right before COVID. And, uh, and I forget where I was going with this. Oh, we went to see Kiss. And honestly, I was so uninspired to see it. I got to be honest. I said hello to, to uh, Doc. And then I sort of almost wanted to ditch out the back door. But we went and watched the show. I was blown away. I mean, they didn't just mail it in. You know what I mean? They actually, like Paul Stanley was jumping around and doing the splits and all this shit at 70 years old. Gene Simmons at 70 was still spitting blood and, and doing all his moves. I mean, they really, they worked their asses off at 70 years old, those guys. And they sounded, you know, I wasn't listening to, you know, solo uh, vocal channels or anything, but they sounded really good. They looked great. And I was actually really entertained. And so I love that. I love Aerosmith. You know, I love that Steven Tyler still goes out and looks like a rock star and acts like a rock star, even though he probably doesn't feel like doing that much anymore, you know? But I don't like the guys who just sit on a stool and... You know, like I could not go see Genesis today with Phil Collins sitting on a wheelchair or whatever it is. I couldn't do it. There's no way. No, it would break my heart. Ugh. Such an amazing band. I, I just couldn't do it. I get why Phil wants to do it. Oh, yeah. And pass the torch on to his son. I get why the rest of them want to play. But it would break my heart too bad. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's just they wrote the book on production. Yeah. They can oh, get away yeah. with it. Yeah, they so, set the bar. You know, other than Phil going walking around like a bar. Well, I lost you there for a couple of seconds, but we were talking about Genesis. I know. know what's sort of going on. Mailing it in from the wheelchair. I don't know what's going on, but you're coming in and out. Oh, really? Oh, bars, are you all right? I'm, I got full signal. Okay, we'll keep talking then. Yeah. Anyway, it just it comes down to, you know, it's still the show, and it's still a great show, but yeah. I just, I'm concerned that, you know, people out there are, trying to just pretend like it's not a problem yeah to be outside and be in big groups of people and there's structure in place to keep track of if there is a problem yeah yeah i I don't i i I don't like the ones who don't think they have to perform anymore they don't think they have to you know work at it a lot of them have to so that they support all the people around them because that's the only way you make any money now that you can't make right right yeah. And it's it's all about data. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not about you know how many records you sell. It's about how many TikToks you get, how much YouTube time you get. Yeah, and all that. So it's a different world, and I don't fear change. As I said, I just you so, have to recognize it speak, and be realistic about it. Speaking of performing with the artists, so I saw a video, and I don't remember if it was on your Facebook or somebody sent it to me or what, but you with uh, New Kids on the Block, Boys to Men, and 98 Degrees singing back. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. I, I mean, got, eight, got 18,000 drunk, horny women to sing Billy Idol's Moni Moni. Yeah. And in the, for some reason, when you play that song in a bar, women all get all drunk. Well, going, but when you play it, it down, and your backup down, singers... Moni, your backup yeah. singers and your dancers are new kids and boys to men in 98 degrees. That doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking no. if it was you by yourself, maybe 18,000 people wouldn't have been screaming, but. All right. The reason we did that is because we were out with, you know, it was a very successful tour selling out in arenas in the summertime. Yeah. And, and great guys 
nicest people I've ever worked with. But it was one set of musicians that played with all three bands. Oh. And, and you know, so it was one set of backline gear up there. And then we had this stage out in the middle of the arena where the band would do their shtick and dance around choreography and all that stuff. And that way we did five-minute set changes. Yeah, in, easy. In between each day. So it was great because you could fit the show within the time limit. Everybody could play all their hits and everybody walked away happy. Yeah. So great tour, going real good and everything. Got to know the musicians in there and, you know, would sit and jam with them and stuff and uh, started getting to know the bands and stuff like that. But the head guy behind the whole thing was Donnie from uh, New Kids on the Block. Right. Donnie, what's the last name? Yeah, Donnie Wilbur. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But real nice guy. Super nice guy. And keep in mind, they've all been stars since they were 16 years old. Right. So they never stayed at hotels. They traveled in their bus. They would come in, never be getting the way. Donnie would sometimes come out and fucking pull feeder with him just because it helped him stay in shape. Nice guys. So I said to Donnie one time, I go, dude, you work your ass off. He goes, I'm just trying to keep up with you. And it's Boston yeah. yeah. I said, I go, I'll make a deal with you. I go, if you help me load this truck tonight, I'll get up and sing a song. He's like, you're on. So that, that started the ball in motion. So the other bands found out about it. I go, how come you guys never fucking get up and jam on one time? They go, well, we haven't worked it out. I go, I'll work it out, and you'll know the song. So there was no rehearsal. We just got up there. I had them all come out on stage. I had worked it out with the band and worked it out, and I got up and just started being a big fucking ham. And it went over huge. That was hilarious. But, it was, but it's, you know, that's why I'm talking to you. And then they were all doing this, like, hang band on, down, we're not worthy thing. This is important. This is why I'm talking to you. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I've never done any podcast. Yeah. I've barely done any interviews. I just did that one with TLSN Magazine. Yeah. That came out yesterday. And I've joined Facebook September 10th of this year. Yeah. I've avoided it for decades. Yeah. Before that, you probably heard my name. But you didn't talk to me. You didn't know me. Mm. Nobody knew me. I stayed under the radar. Wow. I'm letting my story out now because I can't tour anymore. Oh, no. I'm too old. I got a lot of physical things wrong with me. I got injured. I had a hip replacement. I had a stroke when we were down in New Zealand. I had a bunch of shit Jesus. Yeah, I know. But I'm alive. Yeah. I wake up. I take a breath. I'm alive. So I came home and... I was like, ah, it's time for me to just fucking slow down and admit it. And so I signed up for Social Security. And literally two days later, COVID hit. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I came out of retirement just long enough to collect unemployment for the first time in my life. Yeah. And and said, you know what? And just had time to reflect on the whole thing. And I sat at home. And I would only go out when I had my COVID-proof helmet on. And I was like, this sucks. It's in my blood to do this. So then I went out and I did a video with a local band here. And I rented a 26-foot pontoon boat. I mounted a bunch of gear on it. And we drove around a lake, totally unannounced, doing pop-up rock shows. With a big sign on there that said, Crew Nation. Because right. I was trying to get the Crew Nation fund publicity and get people to be aware of it and put out a YouTube video to try and raise some funds. Also in the video, it challenged 
anybody else to go out there and do what we did, find a way to keep playing. Because right. this is at a point where there was no shows right. at all. When was that? It was August 20th of 2020. Yeah. And there was no shows going on. And we went out, we did a show, and it was safe. But when we put it out, I wore a mask, you know, because this is uh, when the mask mandates are just starting. But the band that I brought out and they volunteered to help me do it, at the last minute, they go, fuck this, man. We're not wearing a mask. I'm like, okay, and I got to respect you. Do what you do. And I appreciate you doing this for me for nothing. But when Live Nation saw it, they're like, nah, we can't really attach our name to this. Yeah. So it, it you know, didn't help like I hoped it would. They were originally going to get behind it and push it, and they just kind of walked away from it. So, but I get that. You know what's interesting? Live Nation. So I did this thing called uh, Red Alert Restart, where we right. lit like thousands of buildings red, I'm right? Extremely familiar with it. Yeah. yeah. So I started that thing and put a, a group of people together to do it. And um, Live Nation stiffed us too. So we had just tons of Live Nation buildings that were going to go red. And sort of last minute, Live Nation just said, nope, we're pulling out. And yeah. they said it was due to some political thing that it looked like red was a Republican color. I mean, there were just all kinds of crazy excuses. And we, to well, this but, day, but I don't really hindsight, know why they pulled out, but. Now, in, in hindsight, think about it. Everything that you do instigates stupidity. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. You know? Yeah. So you can't, you can't, you know, 21 pilots can't make a joke about platform shoes. Yeah. Without their, you know, just. You can't, you know, uh, a, a guy can't say, oh, you know, you got to stand up for your country and go there and take it back. Yeah. And suddenly, January 6th, we got insurgency going on like we've never seen before. And it's all from just nothing. Yeah. From just people saying. Well, or greed. You know, I, I mean. For but, the, but I'm just saying, what triggers it is this cancel society. Yeah. That yeah. What Dave Chappelle is talking about. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You can't say anything without pissing somebody off. Yeah. No, you ain't you ain't wrong. I mean the the whole no. cancel thing, and it's like, you know, it's, I you I know, tend to have a pretty anything big mouth. that I'm saying to you right now could be taken by somebody as you know an act of war. Yeah. Yeah. You and ain't that's wrong. It, it's sad, but for me, and to get back to why I'm talking to you, for me, it just it pissed me off that I can't do what I love. Yeah. Which, which is putting on a show or playing a show. So you're not going to tour at all anymore. You're not going to do any of it. Stand by. Oh. Stand by. The, I'm, that's when I decided I'm going to go out and I'm going to record Old Man by Neil Young. I saw that video. That's excellent. So I, well, good. I did that video and I spent $450 doing it. Jesus. I, rec I recorded the song in my basement. Most of the money went to two 20-something kids who were my video guys, one of which was an excellent drone pilot. Kids are just amazing. With yeah, I know, isn't it? It's so true. But anyway, I, I just sat down and I go, you know, for years I've worked with people who, and we've literally spent millions, millions shooting videos. Some of which, after we shoot and they spend millions, they wind up throwing the whole thing away. Yeah. And for 450 bucks, the statement I was trying to make with that video is, first of all, it's a 50-year-old song. 
Think yeah. about that. Yeah. 50 years old. And I do it pretty good. And that was the thing is I've always been able to sing like Neil Young. I actually worked for him for a little while, but I didn't tell him yeah. that I could sing exactly like him. And I don't think that I sounded like a guy trying to sound like Neil Young. I no. think I sounded like me doing his song even better than he did originally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bold thing to say. Yeah. Well, the fact is, actually, he said that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it sounds and I'll great. Deny it that. I'll great. deny that. All right. So, but I did it because I was like, you know what? I can play. Yeah. And I could go out and play, but nobody gives a rap's ass about a 56 year old man playing music. Yeah. As just starting or just coming out. Yeah. But what I think I do, I think I have a very interesting story. And I'm not like the other roadies. Yeah. That's I'm hardworking. Sure. I mean, if you took this whole performing thing out of my equation, I'm still the best fucking stage manager on the planet. Right. Only, or well, only when Jake Barry is around. Well, <laughs> He's the best. But, but this gives no, you, you know a, this gives you a platform though. Your your style and the performing thing that you do. Oh, don't say platform. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. No, but I mean it gives you it gives you a, a voice or whatever you want to well, call it, but well, here's what I'm doing is because I've never used Facebook before. And the reason that I've never used it is because one of my employers owned half of it and said, don't ever get on Facebook. Yeah. So I never did. And I, cause I don't give a fuck about socializing. If I want to talk to somebody, I'll pick up the phone and fucking call you. Yeah. So, so I decided I'm going to use my Facebook thing as a platform for all of these stupid videos and stories that I've collected through the years and try to put together not a book that books are boring and other people are doing books and nobody buys a book except other roadies who go out and want to go, yeah, I was there for that show. Yeah. And let me tell you what I did on, you know, and then go from there. Yeah. Or, but, or he's and, lying. I was there. I yeah. saw it. Yeah. But <laughs> the life that I've lived and the shit that I've done, nobody believes if I put it in a book. Yeah. But, but a screenplay, yeah. What happens now when you wanted to go movie? You don't follow around some director or producer around Hollywood trying to get him to read your script, all right? There's production companies in Hollywood that are owned by big actors, EI, George Clooney, Tom Cruise, um, you know, any of the rest of the A-list guys that have 20 to 30 people that sit around reading bad scripts yeah. all day long and trying to find some semblance of a good idea or a concept within those scripts. And then going back to the guy who wrote the script and go, look, we don't want to buy your script, but we'll buy your story. Yeah. And then they take that and they go give it to their staff and they rewrite the whole story to suit their need and, you know, create something entertaining. And then they sell it on streaming format. Yeah. The Disney channel plus the, uh, YouTube, channel, you know, any of the rest of these things, the Netflix in particular, that do original. Well, and they're all the starving works. for material. They're starving they, for content exactly. right now. So, a roadie that's really fucking good, that lived through this whole lifestyle of the blowjobs for backstage passes, yeah, and the wild styles and the drugs and the drinking and the rehab. And Speak, the speaking of blowjobs, you heard Connie died recently, right? She never blew me. 
<laughs> I didn't say she did. I'm just saying, no, did but, you hear she the, died recently? No, but, the, but, but that's the thing. I've known Connie for years. She's yeah. a very good friend of mine. I would call her every time I would come anywhere near Little Rock. Yeah. And have her, have her come out, and she would just show up. And she'd come up to give me a kiss, and I'd give her a hug, and i go, ah, 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 ah. So, yeah. No kissing. Yeah. No, no, she goes, okay, so who you got for me? And I would find some young guy on the crew, and i go, him. She goes, okay, come with me. Yeah. That's and so the look on their crazy. face both before and after it was priceless, but she would always go, you know, Rocco, I think this is the time. I think it's, you know, there was a special day. I go, no, 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 Connie. <laughs> That's what makes our relationship work. That's why I still talk to you. As That's soon as you crazy. blow me, I thought you aside like a old fruit rind. Yeah. Whereas now you're an icon. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, but there's, and I, this is one of my Rocco-isms. There's a fine line between icon and eyesore. Yeah. And, she turned into that and yeah. it, you know, it was sad because her story, she tried to write a book. I think yeah. she may have wrote a book, but it was, it was very sad what went on with that. I mean, her whole life was because of one chorus in a song by yeah. Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. Well, I mean, she earned that chorus in a song though. That, well, know. exactly. But, but people didn't start talking about her again until she died. Yeah. Yeah, you know, which, which is, is sad. Kind yeah. Of yeah. So my thing is, I'm putting this together, and if I don't attract attention from one of these streaming companies that wants to do my story, at least I'm documenting. Yeah. Documenting what I can of it and putting it all in one spot. I mean, the 50 guitars in the basement, nobody's going to see those. Yeah. Because if I do, then they'll want to feel them or, yeah. you know acquire them somehow. Yeah. And that's not what it's about. It's about me being able to go downstairs and go, okay, I'll play this one. Yeah. I'm just doing it. Now, I write some songs and my bounce factor thing is Jim Peter, my friend that I told you about from Survivor. Yeah. Because he's not only written all the hits for Survivor, he also wrote all the hits for 38 Special. Tremendous amount of uh, tunes for uh, Leonard Skinner, Ario Speedwagon, really? Brian Adams. Yeah. Just not to mention he wrote jingles up the ass huh. for Schlitz and uh, Anheuser-Busch and Plymouth and, you know, all these different companies. So he, he's well off. He's, you know, but he also has purple hair and he dresses wearing, uh, like, the David Crosby stringy leather jacket. Oh, God. <laughs> Great. But but it's just the most lovable guy you'd ever want to meet, and he's got a son, who's of course an unbelievable musician, yeah. and who has a recording studio in Chicago. And his son, uh, you know, he set his son up with this recording studio because he's Jim Peter, and he's got more money than God, right. and he wanted to take care of his kid. And his son is a real nice guy, super nice player, great family man. <laughs> but I went there in 2018 and I contacted all of the people that I used to play with in high school, which was about 20 people that I was able to reach now that you have this internet shit. Mm -hmm. And we got together and I gave them 12 songs and I sent them the tunes and I sent them the words and chords for them. And I said, learn these songs. We're going to get together and we're going to have a jam with all you guys. And we're going to call the project angry pirates. But what was really weird is there were seven drummers that I played with through my high school years. Six of them were dead. 
three of them died the same way. They blew their own head off with a shotgun. Jesus Christ. I was like, Sounds like boy, Spinal Tap, though, huh? I, I, was, I know. I was like, guy, I'm glad I was never a drummer. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Holy Christ. Six out of seven. But, yeah. Wow. But, but and you know, the seventh one, I invited, I go, hey, but you know, you feeling good? You all right? <laughs> Jesus. You like yourself? <laughs> but, you know, but it was just nice to get together. And I, it was at that point where I realized there's a ton of people out there who love playing. But the, the world that we live in is changing a lot. It's not about a band going into the studio and, you know, spending millions of dollars to make money anymore. Anymore, it's about data. And you know as well as I do, the people that are getting data right now are rappers, Justin Bieber, and 14-year-old girls playing an acoustic guitar sitting on their bed with their iPhone camera. What do you mean giving data, though? They're getting half a billion hits. I'm trying to think of uh, this one girl's name who just had a, her iPhone camera taking a picture of her. Oh, yeah. Guitar. Um, oh, my God. What you the hell I'm is her name? About. Yeah. With her brother. She's got an S on her. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, that's Billie Eilish. Yeah, Billie but, Eilish. Yeah, that's who I was but, thinking But of. same thing. Same thing. Is that it's, it's not about spending tons of money on a production. It's about writing a simple song and getting it on YouTube and getting half a billion hits. Yeah. Because they get monetized for that. They make money off of that. Yeah, you got to get popular first and then successful, not successful and then popular like it used to be, I guess, or whatever. Exactly. Right? So, so, But the thing is, people don't get upset about playing with track anymore. You know, nobody's going Millie Vanilli. They don't even know who Millie Vanilli is. Yeah. 21 Pilots is two kids, and they play with track all fucking day long. Yeah. You know? And nobody's calling them on it. But that's where it's going. I did tours with Avicii, God rest his soul. Yeah. Talented kid, but you know, just it was just him. He was yeah. a producer. With a cut laptop. and paste to the band together. Yeah. yeah. And with uh Swedish House Mafia. Oh, okay. But but that's where things are going now. Yeah. You know, the Jake Barry is out doing these EDM the yeah. Uh, yeah, he does electric, electric Daisy. Carnival thing. Yeah, yeah. And they hundreds of thousands of kids, but the thing is Marcel, it hasn't changed since the Christians and the Lions. People just come out, and it doesn't matter who's playing on stage. They just want to come out and get fucked up and watch the opposite sex get fucked up and vomit on the snake. <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't matter what's going uh, on on stage. That's it's so just, you know, funny. Vomit the on the snake. But that's why they come there. You know? yeah. It's like, you know, when you go to any venue... And you walk up the aisle from your seat to go up to the top. You know the, what that opening at the top is called? What? The vomit. Yeah, the vom vomitorium. You know why it's called the vomitory? What? Because back in the Christians and the Lions, that's where you, you get drunk, and they didn't want you puking there on the Lions, so you had to go up the stairs and puke up in the opening up there in oh, the vomitorium. Jesus, that's why they call it that. So that's all it's, it's about getting fucked up. Yeah. And having fun while you're fucked up. Yeah. And even if if you're like me and you don't drink, you go to a show, everybody's dancing around, the chicks are all wiggling, you're going to dance around too and act like you're yeah, fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Well, I might so, not, but you might. But you so, know what I'm saying. So are you it's actively a, out trying to promote this story or this screenplay or whatever? Like, have you tried to get an agent or anything or... 
So you're just throwing stuff out on Facebook and seeing, throwing bait out. Right now, right now, I'm just experimenting. Yeah. Right now, I'm just documenting. Yeah. Right now, I'm putting my story together. And I mean, there are some up, unbelievable videos out there, you know, like the the one with Journey playing in your freaking garage for the 4th of July or whatever it was. That blew me away. I was like, what? That was that's amazing. What I'm these, these have all been my secrets through yeah. the years. Yeah. And there's a lot of video that I can't show. Yeah. Because of all the non-disclosure agreements that yeah. I've signed through. Yeah, I saw one of them. Was that real? The one you sent me? You didn't see anything. I but was it real? I am not you gonna say what it was, but anything. was it real? Yeah, that was me singing. And was that that band playing? Yeah. Jesus. Here's the story. We were doing a thing yeah. up on top of a roof. Yeah. In commemoration of another band who played up on top of a roof. Right. The Beatles. And we were doing a camera blocking thing. It was for a live show in Tokyo on Japanese television. It was going to be uh, put out live. So we were doing camera blocking and a sound check. Well, one of the members wasn't there. Yeah. Because he was stuck in traffic. And in Tokyo, if you're 20 miles away, you're yeah. two hours away. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, we knew he would be there in time for the show, but they wanted to do camera blocking and stuff. So... I was like, okay, and this is also 2006, a week before we were going from Tokyo to the last show in Hawaii. Jesus. Where I was going to be the opening act. Wow, I know. I saw that video, too. That's crazy. Yeah. So because of that, they're like, well, Rocco, you get up and sing. Huh. And I said, no problem. You seem to find yourself in the right place quite often, it well, seems. I'm also a bossy little fuck. Yeah. No, but these are these are incredible. These are like if you take one of these experiences and put it by itself over in the corner, you'd be like, "Wow, that's you know that's a memory for life." And you've got like a hundred of those. That's so cool. But but that's the thing is you know it's so cool, but I don't want to be a cunt about it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. I, well, and it's easy I to become that person. I, exactly, you and know. I want to be I want to be grateful about it, but still keep it in perspective. Yeah. Well, like you know, I said the, earlier, the dinner dinner party thing, I'm serious about that. Like my, my girlfriend sometimes says, why are you so quiet when we go out to dinner with people or we go over to someone's house or whatever? And when I meet be, new people and they ask what you do and you start talking, then you they shut up or they walk away. You know, they get upset and they walk away like you're a braggart or you're full of shit or they're just jealous or whatever it is. I don't know. But so I'd rather just not say anything. And that's the thing is who do, who are you going to tell? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a, a jury of our peers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, I so mean, I, I, the other thing I saw you mention somewhere is that you're the only Rocco in the business, and I happen to be uh, involved with a company called Pyrotechnico in a in a deal that we've done together. And so the owner is Stephen Vitali and his brother who um, I think basically runs the touring side of the business. His name is Rocco Vitale, but it's R-O-C-C-O. No, not the same. Yeah, but he's Rocco. He's still Rocco. And his is real. Like, that's not your real name, is it? Uh, No. It wasn't your your parent-given name. I mean, it's your real name. It's what people call you, but... Did Did you read the story of how I got Rocco? Tell me. 
Well, when I started working for Styx, they had a guitar player named Tommy Shaw. So he won that argument, I guess. No. Who gets to keep the name? No, he didn't care, and I didn't care, but the tour manager felt it was confusing because when he would walk up to the stage and sound check and go, hey, Tommy, both of us would turn our head and go, what? He goes, you need a nickname, pointing at me. And I go, well, why can't he get a nickname? (laughs) (laughs) Because he's the boss. (laughs) Oh, right. There's that. Yeah. So um, on my little business card, which is one of the ways that the tour manager found out about me, Mm -hmm. I found out my name says the rock and roll doctor, Tom Reedy or Tommy Reedy on it. He looked at that and he goes, well, how about if we call you rock? And that was right when rock Hudson came out of the closet. Oh yeah. Yeah, Not a good name. name. And I was like, and I was like, fuck you. And he goes, okay. And he took my business card and he took a Sharpie out, which was relatively new technology at the time. And he put an O after rock, rock and roll doctor. And And he handed it back to me and he goes, okay, now you're Rocco. And I said the one word that changed my life forever. Whatever. (laughs) And so it became that stuck. It it stuck like glue so much so that even my mom, till the day she died, called me Rocco. Yeah. And what's, I had to finally wind up actually changing my name to Rocco because there were so many artists that I worked for or would do work for when I was doing guitar repair that would make a check out to Rocco Reedy. Oh, yeah. So to be able to catch it, I... Uh, you kind of needed to adopt the name. So I had all these checks and I went to an accountant. This is another little interesting story. I went to an accountant. My wife, after she finished law school, was doing charitable work. And one of the charities was run by uh, a lady by the name of Wexner, who in Columbus, her husband, Les Wexner, yeah. owns the Limited, Victoria's Secret, yeah. all the rest yeah, of these. He's you know. Real deal. So, so there's a big money here. And so she's talking to my wife, saying, And are you married? She says, Yes. And, oh, what does your husband do? Oh, he's a, a stage manager for, um, who's oh, I was working for Kiss at the time. Yeah. <laughs> because, He's a stage manager for Aerosmith because she didn't want to say kiss. She goes, oh, I hear good things about them. Does he have a company that he works for? She goes, no, it's just him. She goes, he needs to go see my accountant. I go, so she says, okay, so she sets up an appointment. I go to this guy's office. It's this big, opulent-looking place. Yeah. And I come in there, and he looks over his glasses at me like, and the look on his face is just like, I'm only talking to you, you scumball fucking hippie, because <laughs> Mrs. Wexner asked me to. Yeah. So anyway, he goes through and he explains, you know, looks over my stuff, and he has n- no idea what I do for a living. You know, even though I told him what I do, he's like, oh, blah 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 blah. Yeah. He's looking at how much money I make, and he goes, okay, well, what you should do is start an F-type corporation. So, boring story short, he gets me all set up with this corporation and everything, and it's called. Rocco LTD, which stands for Living the Dream. Ah, and so, so you kept that was your company. That became your. That's my company. Ah. with one employee, me. Yeah, but I could get cash, uh, get uh, check cash that were made out to Rocco Reedy now because of that. So then, once my wife, you know, finished law school and got all that, blah blah, blah, blah finally did it. This is a detail. 
which, you know, probably would make my dad spin in his grave because I'm actually Thomas Reedy the sixth. Oh, and now but you're I never Marco Reedy the first. Exactly. And you know what? I'm me. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And I, and I, you know, I decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to have children. So did my wife, because I'm in tears saying goodbye to the dog. If I had a kid, yeah. I'd never score again. Yeah. Ah, uh, you know what? It's the it's the greatest and hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. Is I have a son, uh, just one son. He's seventeen now, but uh, you know I I couldn't imagine life without him. But at the same yeah. time, you're kind of looking at eighteen, going, "Hurry up, <laughs> you know, hurry up, eighteen, come <laughs> along. I need to do some things here before I get too old." You know. So uh, hey, I want to ask you one more story because I I read it and I laughed my ass off when I read it, but I think it was with Twenty One Pilots. At Soldier Field? No, that was Snow Patrol. Ah, Snow Patrol, Soldier Field. You know which story I'm talking about then. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what the hell? <laughs> Tell me what happened well, first, and then what, what made you right. think of it? All right, first of all, Snow Patrol is one of those bands. I've, I've never referred to any of the bands that I've worked with who aren't the headliners. As a opening act or support act or anything, except special guests, and I want them to feel like a special guest. I want because yeah. this is their big moment. Yeah. I love their energy because they're young and dumb and full of cum, and they want to get up there and fucking take the world by the balls and blow the headliner off the stage. Well, Snow Patrol was first with us when we were out doing a stadium tour in Europe, and in Europe they were doing pretty good in the UK, but they were still poor as this. And they had uh, their crew and band and all their equipment on one shitty old tour bus and no hotels on days off because they didn't have money for that. So we would do our stadium show, uh, load in the day before the show day in Europe with you two because it was a big show. Mm-hmm. And I was out there parking up the 50 trucks and I see this tour bus on the other side of the parking lot over by a little porta potty, we'd set up there a little station for the truck drivers, and the, the bus was parked there. And our buses were at the hotel. I'm going, what, what the fuck? You know, this. Yeah. So I go knock on the door, and this tall, lanky guy opens the door up, and I go, "Hey, I'm Rocco. Who are you guys?" And he's like, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry. We were just parked here so that we could use the porta potty." And I go, "Wait a minute. Where are you from? Dundee, Scotland. I was born in Aberdeen." Oh, really? So I said, here you are for five years. Oh, no, here you come with me right do. So I brought them inside, and they thought they were in trouble. I brought them inside, brought them in their dressing room, gave them a bunch of towels, took them to catering, fed them, and I go, you're here as my guest today, okay? You're going to find out today what it's like to be a rock star, because tomorrow you're going to die. Yeah. Okay? So they were like, wow, this is great. And they all got showers and they went back to their bus and they're living the dream. And they come in the next day and they were they were offering to unload trucks for me. Jesus. So I was like, okay, come on. So I brought them over and I made them unload the dressing room trucks. These are rock stars. Yeah. yeah and they're true. But nice guys. So anyway, we developed a friendship, but they were very scared every time before they were going to play. I mean, like shaking, physically shaking before they got up on stage to play. Really? And they were, you know, yeah. And, you know, because they're opening for you too in stadiums with, you know, 50,000 people. Yeah. So they're scared. So they would come to the stage and just kind of, you know, look over the top of it, look out at the crowd and see how many people were there. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're a little nervous, that's all. 
so I'd start telling them jokes and telling them road stories and getting them to laugh and relax a little bit. And then I go, okay, time to die and put them up on stage and watch them shit their pants while they got and did their little set. <laughs> so did this for that tour. And then they had their big hit single, that chasing cars song. Are you yeah. familiar with it? Yeah. 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 So that came out and they suddenly became huge. And then they were back out with us again. They were, you know, they, you two loved them because they were great guys and they were great songwriters and all that. So, you know, they would come out each time they would have more confidence, but just because it was something we always did, they would always come and see me 15 minutes before their show and expect to see a little comedy act. Yeah. And I was more than happy to do it. You were basically talking them down from their nerves, right? Well, just, you know, I was trying new new material, you know? Got to be a funny guy if you get fucking 150 stagehands and don't speak English. Yeah, (laughs) Get them to do what you want. You got to be fucking funny. So anyway, we developed a friendship and all that. So fast forward, that was 2001 or something like that. Fast forward to 2006 when we were, no, 2011. We were in Soldier's Field in Chicago, my hometown. U2 360 tour, biggest tour ever. And we were there for a week rehearsing with U2 on stage at night. And on show day, we didn't want uh, our singers in U2 to stress their voice anymore after singing for four days of rehearsal. So we didn't have them come in for sound check. So I let Snow Patrol get up there and have a nice two hour sound check. I go enjoy it because it's the only one you're going to get this whole fucking tour, boys. <laughs> so. They get up on stage. There's nobody in Soldier's Field. Beautiful blue sky day, 75 degrees. My crew is all out on the bus. It's just me and Snow Patrol on stage and, you know, one tech out of front of the house. They go, come on, boys. I don't hear no singing. From Blazing Saddles. Remember that line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they know that I know every line from Blazing Saddles. So Gary, the singer, gets on the sound system and goes, ladies and gentlemen, the mayor of Chicago, Rocco Reedy. And they start playing Chasing Cars yeah. up on stage. And I'm standing at the 50-yard line, just taking it all in, going, there's my boys, you know. Just watching, I get almost a tear in my eye, just watching them now that they're big and rock stars and they're on the big stage in my hometown of Chicago, the soldiers fucking field where the 1986 Chicago Bears played with Jim McMahon and Refrigerator Perry and Walter Payne. I'll never get this chance again. And I took off all my clothes and danced around on the 50-yard line. Why? Because one, because one of the lines that I told them when they were young and nervous is an old theater thing. If you're nervous when you're up on stage, you look out at the audience and imagine they're all naked. Right. It's an old thing from theater. Yeah. And you won't be nervous anymore because you're looking at a naked audience. So I figured I'm going to just take that and put it on the 50-yard line of Soldier's Field. Jesus and they Christ. they were pissing themselves laughing. No they couldn't kidding. blame. Yeah. And it just says, they, you know, they go, yeah, that's what you told us years ago. <laughs> and I go, so what do you think of my dick? <laughs> <laughs> and they go, well, well, it's nice, but can you pick up peanuts with it? Oh, my God. That is crazy. That's hilarious. And then I said, how was my hair? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Got to finish with that. Well, okay. Rocco, I, I, I've taken two hours of your life here, so I, I appreciate it very much. I feel like we could talk for two more hours, but your iPhone battery is going to die. 
So I've had worse problems in my life. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's check in again at some point. Cause I want to hear how this whole thing goes with, uh, with your, uh, with your screenplay, you know, cause you do have yeah. a crazy interesting life obviously. And I mean, there's a yeah, lot of people in our industry, I think that sort of fit that mold, but you're just different. Like you, because of the whole opening up for all these bands and jamming with the bands and journey playing at your freaking housewarming party, you know, these are special stories. <laughs> They're pretty incredible. True that. But keep watching my oh, YouTube course. and my Facebook page. So, so they have more, but, it, but you're, I don't want to. You're just do it like facebook.com.com slash Rocco Reedy, right? I guess. I think I so. Know. You know what? I'll share your, I'll, I'll uh, make sure to link to your Facebook when I put up the, uh, the podcast. Cause I want to make sure people check out your Facebook cause these videos are unbelievable. And, you know, I think your yeah. story needs to be told. So. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, and that's why I say, that's why I'm doing this. I'm, this is my first step for trying to instigate this thing. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to make a living and make millions of dollars off it. Right. You just want to Nobody share some, want to share some amazing gives. stories. Nobody gives a fuck. Yeah. 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 People care about themselves, but yeah. if somebody can live my adventures through me telling a story about it, because it'll never happen again. Yeah. That's All of true. the shit that we've done for the past 45 years, this will never happen again. I know. This era is dying. <laughs> you know, it's... No, it's, I won't say dying. I'll say evolving. You know yeah. what the next big thing is going to be? What? Arena video game. Oh, God. <laughs> no, but think about it. Yeah, I know. I've That's seen it, actually. I've, I, I saw it at a trade show. I think it was uh, Infocom or something where I saw but this arena come. video game thing. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. It'll come and it'll go. Yeah. yeah that's and then the true. next thing will come. Yeah. And then the next thing. And eventually it'll come back to four guys playing backbeat music. I with sure hope Parker. so. I sure hope so. I hope we live long enough to get back there. <laughs> oh, no. We'll yeah. be long dead. Yeah. But, you know, a hundred years from now, who are they going to remember? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Justin Bieber or the Beatles? You're right. You're right. You know, that Beatles thing is know. amazing. That get back yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know one of, one of my favorite things. Son, I'm going to say this to you, and then we're going to go. There's in the new Star Trek movies with Chris Pine playing Captain Kirk, the J.J. Abrams. Oh, they're they're splendid. And yeah. one they they rebooted the whole series with a whole new set, but they're still Captain Kirk and Spock and Doctor and Scotty and all the rest of that. Right. But one of the things is they're going into battle with whoever, the Romulans or whatever, and they're about to start into it. And Captain Kirk goes, I want some music for this. And Spock looks at him and he goes, why? He goes, because it'll make them nervous. And he goes, Sulu, put on my favorite song. And he puts on the BC Boys Sabotage. Nice. And this is supposed to be in the year 2460 or whatever. And Spock looks over and he goes, oh, classical music. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> it funny. is. But but then it's so perfect that the soundtrack for this battle of just this, you know, <laughs> sabotage, you know, yeah. which was the first time I ever heard that song. I thought it was a piece of crap. But now, oh, every time song. I hear that song, I think about the Star Trek battle. That's hilarious. And that's the thing. 
but that's the thing is music will evolve, but it will always revert back. But I mean, just this whole be the Beatles, the get back thing. Like I was never a massive Beatles fan. I don't know why. I think I was born just a little bit too late to be a massive Beatles fan. You know, I was more Led Zeppelin, but Mm -hmm. you know, I, this show, I just finished watching it a couple days ago and it changed everything I thought about the Beatles. Like it changed why I thought they broke up. It changed, you know, how well I thought they got along or didn't, um, and just watching them write, like, let it be. And yeah. watching them write iconic songs and what they might have been had they not have changed that part, you know, or whatever. It's just like, it's unreal. It's like pinch me moments. I got I got goosebumps from it. Oh, so, I cried through the whole fucking thing. Oh, it's an amazing show. So well done. And I'm so happy I saw it. And I can't wait to watch it again, to be honest. So I know, but I don't know if I could sit through watching them smoke that big cigarette. Oh my cigars. God. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Everyone smoked constantly. I know, but that was, that was the time we were in. I remember yeah. walking through grocery stores, smoking a cigarette in the produce section. I know. Putting it out on the On ground, airplanes. On. Smoking on yeah. airplanes. I tell my yeah. son that and he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, there was a smoking section and a non-smoking section. He's like, holy shit, dad. So it's yeah, a it's different time, and it that's is. what I say. You know, our our music will evolve, our business will evolve. Yeah, but it's going to change. And yeah. it's going to change fast, and it's going to change faster. Yeah, but that's all right. I'm just going to slow down, and I'm going to play 50 year old music. Good for you, man. Well, keep keep posting stuff on <laughs> Facebook because I'm loving it, and I appreciate you spending time with me here today. All right, man. Give Thanks. me a call anytime. Thanks, I'm dude. I, I appreciate you. All thank right, you. Take care. Yeah. Thank Bye-bye. you. Stay